Jesus, you are good and you are faithful always. God, I think about this season of Christmas and how really it is a picture of your faithfulness, of centuries of promises through prophecy that you would come, that you would redeem and restore us as your people and and make a way for us to be made right with you. And then you came true on that promise. God, that faithfulness fills us with hope for every other promise that we read in your word about your heart towards us, about your kingdom overcoming. God, even if our circumstances right now uh, don't, don't feel like those are being fulfilled, God, we look with expectation towards the future and ultimately towards eternity with you. God, we trust you. We, we give you this time. God, just as we give you our lives, I ask that you would speak. Lord, that you would help me to say nothing more, nothing less than what you would have for us today. In your name, Jesus. Amen. I want to start by reading a, a poem together. This is called Sharon's Christmas Prayer. She was five, sure of the facts, and recited them with slow solemnity, convinced every word was revelation. She said, they were so poor, they had only peanut butter and jelly sandwiches to eat. And they went a long way from home without getting lost. The lady rode a donkey. The man walked. And the baby was inside the lady. They had to stay in a stable with an ox and an ass. But the three rich men found them because a star lighted the roof. Shepherds came. And you could pet the sheep but not feed them. Then the baby was born. And do you know who he was? Her quarter eyes inflated to silver dollars. The baby was God. And she jumped in the air, whirled around, dove into the sofa, and buried her head under the cushion, which is the only proper response to the good news of the incarnation. I love that this year we're talking about the wonder of Christmas. And the wonder of Christmas, I think, is best seen through a child's eyes. We looked at this definition last week, and I want to read it again, because wonder can be translated or defined, rather, as as a noun and as a verb. As a noun, it's a feeling of surprise, mingled with admiration, caused by something beautiful, unexpected, unfamiliar, or inexplicable. And as a verb, it is a desire, or to be curious, to know something. I think the challenge for for many of us, especially us adults in the room, is, is wonder can start to fade as we become a little bit too familiar with the incredible miracle of Christmas and the Incarnation. I mean, the truth of God coming to earth as a baby. I mean, many of us have, have celebrated this for years, Right? And how does this year, like, how do we still keep that awe and that wonder, that surprise, that amazement fresh in our hearts? Because we look at it and we say, yeah, we've, we've heard this before, right? I mean, yes, it's miraculous. Don't, don't get us wrong. We, we're thankful that God came to us, that he walked among us, lived a perfect life, and gave his life as a sacrifice. But the question for me that I have to really wrestle with is, do I recognize 
the implications and the impacts of the incarnation, God coming to earth in the flesh, not just this time of the year, but every day of my life throughout the year. So the incarnation is, is this moment when God said, I am coming to you. I mean, just, just think about that for a moment. If we didn't know that's what God was planning to do, if we didn't know that was the solution that he had in mind to help restore us back to relationship with him, is, is that really what we would expect the creator to do? The one who put all the galaxies into place, all the planets, the stars, everything into place. The one who created everything that we see on this planet. Thank you. Is that what we would expect? I mean, typically not, right? The way, if you think about the way the world writes a story, the one who is in power and authority would never humble himself and kind of put him at the mercy of, of his creation. Like, why would God, the creator, enter his creation in such humble circumstances? It's so backward from the world's way. The world is about power, prestige, popularity. And you think about the way Jesus came was anti all of those things. We sang this song together uh, last week, and I am not going to sing it for you, but I am going to read some of the lyrics together because I think it really just captures the hearts of just this upside-down way that Jesus entered our world. This song was called Manger King. It says, you could have stepped into creation with fire for all to see, brought every tribe and nation to their knees, arriving with the host of heaven in royal robe and crown, the rulers of the earth all bowing down. Listen to this line. But you chose meekness over majesty, wrapped your power in humanity. Glory be to you alone, King who reigns from a manger throne. My life, my praise, everything I own to Jesus the King on a manger throne. You could have marched in all your glory into the heart of Rome, showed them splendor like they'd never known. But you wrote a better story in humble Bethlehem, creator in the arms of common men. Jesus came in such a humble fashion. It was simple. It was quiet. It was, it was out of the spotlight. It wasn't in the center of Jerusalem, in the, in the palace. It was in this little nowhere town called Bethlehem. Not, not even in an actual hotel room, but in a stable with livestock to witness. I mean, this is ridiculous. This is the creator of the universe entering his creation. Is that the way you would write the story? This is how God chose to come. And not just how he came, but he would, he would choose to come as one of us. That he would choose to enter his creation as one of his created. That he actually put on flesh in all the limitations that comes with that. He put on a mortal body subject to illness, to smell, to fatigue, to utter humbly bodily processes that we don't need to talk about from the stage, but that, that's how he came. And again, I wonder why, why would God do that? I want to share one more story from this book, The Holy Longing. 
It says, there is a marvelous story about a four-year-old child who awoke one night frightened, convinced that in the darkness around her were all kinds of spooks and monsters. Alone, she ran to her parents' bedroom. Her mother calmed her down and taking her by the hand, led her back to her own room, where she put on a light and reassured the child with these words. You needn't be afraid. You're not alone here. God is in the room with you. To which the child replied, I know that God is here, but I need someone in this room with some skin on. And I love the simple honesty of that story because I think for us, if we're honest, like we need someone with skin on. When we think about God, you know, kind of distant and far off sometimes, but that God would choose to come experience life the way you and I experience it, so that we could relate to our Savior. Like we need a Savior with skin on. And Jesus came to say, I'm willing to walk among you as one of you, show you what it means to be fully human the way I created you. And ultimately we know when we celebrate Easter that it led to His life laid down, surrendered, but then death conquered for every single one of us. He came with an announcement and tangible experiences of peace, of joy, of grace, favor, kindness, blessing, generosity. There's so many stories and and prophecies that we could talk about. I mean, there are hundreds of prophecies fulfilled with the coming of Jesus. And while I would love to unpack every single one of those today and and talk about every declaration that's made about his birth and who he is and what he will do, we don't have time, so I'm going to drill it down to to one. And that's in Luke chapter 2, verse 14. This is the announcement that the angels give to the shepherds. When Jesus is born, they say, Glory to God in highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. And I want to really hone in on what it means to be at peace or to have this peace that God promises and what it means to be someone on whom God's favor rests. So first, what does it mean to have peace? Peace with God, peace with others, peace with yourself. Well, we know this, that the peace spoken of by the angels was not based on circumstances because the world at that time was far from a peaceful place. And so there must have been something beyond circumstances they were talking about as they spoke about peace. So I want to look at Jesus' own words. When he talks about the peace that he gives, here's what he says in John chapter 16. I have told you all this, that you may have peace in me. So our peace is found in Jesus, not somewhere else or through someone else. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart. Because I have overcome the world. And then earlier in chapter 14, he says these words, I am leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give. So the peace that we're longing for, that we're in need of, is not found in in, in the perfect relationship, in the perfect job, in the perfect financial status, in the perfect holiday moment as a family. He says, it's found only in me, so don't be troubled or afraid. And also a couple of verses later on in the New Testament show that the peace that we receive from Jesus also is meant to be shared with others, meant to overflow out of our lives into our relationships. 
2 Peter 3.14 says, And so, dear friends, while you are waiting for these things, talking about the return of Jesus, to happen, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in His sight. And then 1 Peter 3.11, it says, Search for peace and work to maintain it. Peace in our relationships is not passive. It says work to maintain it. It requires effort on our part to be at peace with those around us. I think there's a connection between the peace that God gives and and being one on whom God's favor rests. See, having peace with, with God and with ourselves comes as we recognize and truly believe that we have this identity as God's favored ones. So the question then, when the angels say, peace to those on whom God's favor rests, or those with whom God is pleased, is how do you become someone God is pleased with? Well, before we talk about what that looks like, I think we need also recognize the ways that we misinterpret or misdefine what it means to be someone that God is pleased with. I think one way is, is nationality. That was the trouble for the Jewish people. Like they, they just claimed this truth that we are God's chosen people. We're Israel, so we're good. And Jesus kind of challenged that in some moments. and said, you can say you have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob as your ancestors, but if you're not right with God, then there's something missing there. So clearly that's not the answer. Sometimes we think, well, it's the right family or the right upbringing. That, that makes us right with God or in God's favor. Maybe it's the right vocation, career, the right financial status. Maybe it's the fact that in a season of life that our lives feel like they're free of pain and struggle. So God must be pleased with us if life feels easy in the moment. I think it's actually opposite sometimes. Or maybe it's, it's the right activities, the right habits in our lives. Things like prayer, fasting, church attendance, Bible reading. I want to be really clear. Those are not bad things. Nor can we just throw out the call to holy living when it comes to following Jesus. But here's the thing. If those practices alone made you right with God and made you someone that God's favor rests upon, then the, the Pharisees in Jesus' day, the religious leaders and, and teachers, they would have been the very first ones to follow Jesus because they did all the right things. They checked all the boxes and they were the ones that went head to head and had the hardest time recognizing Jesus, God in the flesh among them. So it's not those things alone that earn us God's good favor. Or maybe it's the right beliefs, the right theology, belief in who God is. Again, that is important, yes, but that might not be the entirety of what it means to be someone that God is pleased with. So again, what does Jesus say it means to be someone that God sees and is pleased with, his favor rests upon? Mark 2, it says, when Jesus heard this, and and this happens right before where he's being questioned about the people he's associating with, and people actually ask a question, how can you eat with such scum? How can you associate with those people over there? And here's his response. He says, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. So Jesus in this passage is saying that humility and desperation for him are essential for coming under his leadership and being made right with him 
through relationship. Later on in a moment where he's in a busy season of ministry and people are trying to vie for his time and his attention, it says that his mother and his brothers came to see him. They stood outside and they sent word for him to come and talk with them. There was a crowd sitting around Jesus and someone said, your mother and your brothers are outside asking for you. Jesus replied, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Then he looked around him and said, look, these are my mother and brothers. Listen, anyone who does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Okay, so anyone who does his will. So what does it mean to do God's will? I'm glad you asked. John 17, Jesus says again this. You're going to hear a lot of Jesus' words as we continue. He says, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So doing God's will means we have a relationship with God. In John 15, Jesus calls it abiding in him, remaining connected to him like a vine does to a branch, dependent on him for the source of life. And as we abide in him, it leads to this. First John says, those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. He's talking here about becoming a person known and characterized by love. That is the definition of spiritual maturity. Like if you're looking for like a one statement, here's what it means to be mature in Christ, becoming someone known and characterized by love, which has not happened in over days, over weeks, even over months. This happens over years of abiding with Jesus. See, I, I believe that we become more loving when we recognize God's love for us and the identity that God has freely given to every single one of us if we are in Christ. There's a moment in the beginning of, of Jesus' earthly ministry that we see. It's, it's the moment of his baptism. And I, I want to read this passage and unpack it a little bit together. It says, at this time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. See, when you and I are in Christ, we are given a new identity. And that new identity is nothing short than the identity that Jesus lived and earned perfectly for us. And he offers it freely through faith to any that would come and believe in him. Which means this. Those words spoken of by the Father in verse 11, spoken over Jesus at his baptism. You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Another translation says, in you, I delight. Those are the very same words the Father speaks over you 
and over me in Christ. That you are his son. You are his daughter. Deeply and dearly loved. And with you, he is well pleased. With you, he finds delight. Why is that so simple to say and so hard to believe? Because like for me, for one moment, I, I can believe that and believe that's true. And then in the next moment or the next day, I believe I need to go do something to prove myself, to earn my value, to earn my worth. Now, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater because we are called to, to do good works through Christ that he has planned and prepared for every single one of us, Ephesians 2.10. But that is not what gives us our identity. That's not what makes us someone that God's favor rests upon or that he is pleased with. He is pleased with you. He is pleased with me when we believe and surrender to Jesus long before we do anything. And, and that belief is one of the hardest things to hold tightly to in our hearts. There is no greater gift. We talk about Christmas. We talk about gifts. There is no greater gift and the gift of becoming someone that God is pleased with through Christ. 1 John 3 says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. That's who you are. That's who God says you are. Before you do anything to try to show that he should like you, show that he should choose you. That's who God says you are if you have that faith through Christ. Here's the challenge for me. Again, I can read this. I can write a message. I can, I can preach on this. And then tomorrow I'm going to be wrestling with it again. Going, is, yeah, but is that, is that really enough? Surely there's something that I need to add to that that would make God love me a little bit more, put me a little bit more in his good graces, you know, make sure I'm not on the naughty list. I'm on the nice list. If you want to use that Christmas analogy, right? Like we just get caught up in, in these other definitions. And so for me, I always looked at, okay, if, if this is what it means to, to abide in Christ, to believe this about who God says I am, I, I have to look to the life of Jesus and say, where, where do I see in the life of Jesus a habit or a practice where, where he remained rooted and established firmly in his identity? That he did not waver, even as people were trying to forcibly make him an earthly king or, or force him to fit their expectations of who the Messiah was meant to be. Like, what, what did he do to remain true to who God called him to be? And if you'll allow me, I want to look at that real briefly together. In Luke 5, 16, the, the message translates this verse. It says, as often as possible... Jesus withdrew to out-of-the-way places for prayer. Very, very simple. It mentions it like that, almost in passing, like a side comment, probably a dozen or so times as you read through the Gospels, that Jesus would withdraw for prayer. Or it'd be early in the morning while it was still dark, people would look around, couldn't find him, and oh, there's Jesus praying again. And, and there's something about the practice in his life of solitude and silence with God that I believe kept him connected deeply 
to the Father's heart, to those words spoken of, of him in his baptism. And that can also be true in our lives. They keep us connected deeply to our identity in Christ as people that God's favor rests upon through Jesus. The, the thing that baffles me is like, as we read about Jesus going away for prayer, I'm like, this is Jesus. He's God in the flesh. Why does he need to pray? I mean, anyone else wonder that? I'm like, doesn't he just like have a direct line just constantly coming in? Like, why does he need to go away and pray? I don't have that answer. Uh, that's above my pay grade, but I, I wonder about that. But what, I, what it does make me realize that, okay, if Jesus did that, how much more would that be important in my life to stay rooted and grounded in who he is? See, we, we withdraw, we, we, we step away from the distraction, the noise, the worry, the pace of life to be with God, to hear him speak again, you are my beloved in whom I delight, with you I am well pleased. We withdraw to hear his voice. We also withdraw from the world to be with God so that when we re-enter, we're better equipped to love the world and the people around us. Now, I don't want to over-romanticize this, this image of alone time with God, solitude with God, because um, one, it's not easy, and, and, and two, it's not always amazing in the moment. It's not like a, a touchy feel-good, like, oh, that was an incredible 10 minutes of silence or 15 minutes or half a day or whatever it might be. It, it's, it's, it's hard. Because I think the truth is also, like Jesus, when he entered the wilderness for 40 days after his baptism, and he was fasting and praying, we know when we read the Gospels, God's voice was not the only voice there, Right? And the same thing is true. When you, when you and I step away from the hustle and bustle and the demands and the technology and, and we'd want to sit quietly with God, and as much as we would love to just have this direct line of communication, just hear God's voice very clearly in our hearts, at least in my personal experience, that's typically not the way it goes. I'm oftentimes met with anxiety about the things that aren't done yet or, or I'm met with this this conversation that I've been running through my head about that person that made me upset like a week ago and all of a sudden that's right at the forefront of my mind again. Or I'm just distracted by all the to-dos on my list, right? And it's, it's hard just to kind of wipe the slate clean. And so I think it's important that we recognize and have a filter of in that moment, how do we recognize God's voice from the other noise, the other distractions, and the other voices that might be present in trying to get us off track. And while we can't do a crash course on hearing God's voice in five minutes, I want to at least do a high-level overview. Um, this is from a pastor in Vancouver, BC, um, Ken Shigematsu. And he has some great just distinguishing comparisons between when am I hearing God's voice and when am I hearing the enemy's voice? And how do I know? Well, first of all, God's voice will draw you near through conviction of sin. While the enemy's voice will drive you away from God through condemnation. Conviction and condemnation are not the same. God's voice will 
still you, while the enemy's voice will rush or hurry you. God's voice reassures you. The enemy's voice frightens you. God's voice enlightens you with truth. The enemy's voice confuses you. God's voice encourages you. The enemy's voice discourages you. God's voice comforts you. The enemy's voice worries you. And God's voice calms you while the enemy's voice obsesses you. So practically, maybe you have a routine of silence in your life already. Maybe this is brand new. I would encourage you in a couple things. One, please start where you are. So maybe that starting is, is literally a minute or two minutes. It doesn't have to be at the beginning of the day, but I think there is something before you turn over your cell phone and see the notifications waiting for you, before you open up social media or a news feed. Just sit in silence, take some deep breaths, and just say, Lord, would you fill me with your presence today? Maybe you read a, a short verse or a psalm to kind of just center your mind and your hearts on God and His truth and His word. Or maybe you just sit quietly and you just, under your breath, just say the name Jesus while you breathe. Maybe it's one or two minutes. Maybe, maybe you eventually kind of grow or stretch. to Maybe it's five minutes, ten minutes, twenty minutes. There's not like a, a magic amount that all of a sudden makes you in this special category of holiness. That's not what we're going for, but just that hopefully it would center you in who God says you are. And honestly, maybe it's 30 seconds in the morning before you lift your head off your pillow as your baby is crying. When you had this, you know, what you pictured would be this amazing morning of time with Jesus, and all of a sudden that was derailed because baby woke up an hour and a half early. And maybe you just recite Psalm 23 before you lift your head from the pillow. But these little moments of intentional silence and solitude, time with Jesus, doing what you can to remove distractions, quiet your mind, and be present to the Spirit of God. As it says in Psalm 37, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. So start where you are and give yourself lots of grace. Because I promise you, the distractions will come. The, the constant reel of, of thoughts going through your mind are just going to feel like the volume got cranked up to 11 all of a sudden when you try to actually be quiet and still your heart and still your mind. Give yourself lots of grace. Don't, don't see a distraction or a, a, a thought that comes in that's a competing thought as a, as a reason to feel guilty. Look at it as an opportunity to say yes and come back to God again. Every distraction is just an opportunity to come back to God and say, God, here I am again. Would you speak to my heart? Would you fill me with your spirit? And I believe as you sit with God, experiencing his love, his grace, his compassion, you will grow in becoming a person of love and grace and compassion. Not in a matter of days, not weeks, not even months.
It'll be years. I use the analogy of compound interest, where it's like you can't like just look and pinpoint a moment that all of a sudden, boom, the Holy Spirit just injected you with extra grace and compassion for that difficult person at work. That's not how it goes. I wish it did. That would be nice. But it's all of a sudden you just, this practice of just being with God, abiding in Jesus, you'll just look back and say, okay, I'm, I'm maybe not like, truly where I want to be. I still lose my patience with my kids sometimes. I'm still selfish with you know, regards to my spouse, whatever it might be. But God is doing a work in my heart. He is changing me as I recognize more and more how deeply loved I am. That is overflowing into my relationships. See, when we come to know and experience the love of God personally and truly believed that we are people that he delights in, that he is overjoyed to be in relationship with us. That can't help but overflow into the relationships around us. And so as we tie this with a bow, I think back to where we started with the incarnation, right? God entering his creation that act was not a one-time historical moment that happened 2,000 years ago that we celebrate each year at Christmas. The potential for the incarnation to continue through us, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, through God's people, the body of Christ, is full, alive, and well. I love this quote from Rawheiser. He says, the incredible graciousness power and mercy that came into our world in Jesus is still, at least potentially so, in our world, in us, the body of Christ. What Jesus did, we too can do. In fact, that is precisely what we are asked to do. See, we are called to enter the world and the lives of others around us the same way that Jesus entered our world through his incarnation. Humbly, simple, genuine, not self-promoting, showing the world a, a different way than the popularity, prestige, and power that everyone's vying for. Because God's kingdom is an upside down kingdom. Jesus came in meekness. He didn't give up any of his majesty, but he came humbly, meekly to us. Expressing lives that are full of peace and joy, favor, blessing, compassion, forgiveness, reassurance, and encouragement. All the things the Holy Spirit continues to remind us of were to emulate in our relationships to those around us. St. Teresa of Avila says, Christ has no body now but yours, no hands but yours, no feet but yours. Yours are the eyes through which Christ's compassion must look out on the world. Yours are the feet with which he is to go about doing good. Yours are the hands with which he is to bless us now. And then one more quote from Rawheiser. He says, The task is to radiate the compassion and love of God as manifest in Jesus in our faces and our actions. That Christmas should be a time where 
This, this wonder of the incarnation, this wonder of God's audacious, incredible love for us should move us with compassion so much that the world around us sees the love of Jesus in the body of Christ, his people. Would you stand with me? We're going to have prayer partners up front uh, that would love to pray with you uh, about anything happening in your life. Uh, But as we go, I just want to just kind of proclaim and, and pray a blessing over us today. So would you close your eyes and just receive from the Lord. May the God of peace bless you with an experience and assurance of his love for you this Christmas season. And may his peace and love overflow through you to those around you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great week. Merry Christmas.